Today, we have an absolutely delicious chat with Esther Bontrager, a passionate advocate for homeschooling. Esther's created a structure for her own children and those of her closest friends that's based on faith and also has very intentionally researched secular practices that she feels will give her children and her students the best education first about who they are as individuals and then what will lead them to be productive adults in society later on. You're going to hear Esther broach subjects such as growing up Amish, leaving that community, and continuing her most cherished and valued practices from her childhood in her own home. She relates in so many ways her deep love of learning and how she's tempered the very strict religious background she had as a child into a foundational element in her daily planning in her homeschool. Esther grew up speaking Pennsylvania Dutch, and so you might find her English has this lovely lilt and cadence that comes from having that language in her mind to begin with. Get ready to note down a few of the books that Esther's found to be inspirational in her philosophy of homeschooling as she shares her young students' education. You'll see that even before she began, she had the whole arc of her young charges thought out carefully so that even what looks like free time or playtime is really a very deliberate opportunity for them to develop those skills she feels are fundamental in their growth as whole people. I have a feeling you're going to react just as I did when I listened to Esther express her wonder at having the opportunity to form her own children's education, to be able to interact with them at their highest and lowest points of the day, and the ongoing educational gems that she and her children discover daily. You'll find more fascinating conversations at Doodles with Donna and find activities that you too can use with your homeschoolers or students in other settings at scaffoldingmagic.com. So let's get right into this linguistic hub with Esther Bontrager in which she describes her ideal homeschooling elements. Esther, welcome. First of all, where are you where do you live? I live in Three Rivers, Michigan. So in the Midwest. Really interesting because I was just speaking with Shannon Warner and she said, I live in Michigan and don't tell me it's the Midwest. Oh, okay. Don't do it. She <laughs> said that. Yes, yes, yes. But <laughs> because I'm a New Yorker and you know New Yorkers, nothing else really exists anyway. So we just say, as ah, in the Midwest, you know those middle states. That is too funny. So Esther. Let's go into it. Tell me about your educational history. Okay. So I grew up in Indiana and I actually grew up Amish. And so I went to a small private school and actually a one room school, which with a curtain in between the two sides. And then the focus was a lot just on the basics. And then we had, you know, three recesses. And we played hard and we, we learned all of these fun games. And, and so it only went to eighth grade. That was what was kind of available. And so on graduation, I cried because I loved school and I just, just didn't want it to end. I, I loved learning. And since then I learned that, you know, I can totally keep on going. And so that's basically when I was in my 20s, early 20s, I left that lifestyle and I decided then when we were starting our own family that I would prefer to homeschool since, yeah, just because of how things were, I was like, I think I would rather homeschool. And so as that choice 
was real made real to me I thought, okay, well, I need to gird up myself and, you know, figure out what I want, how I want to do this. And so I, I read the book, A Thomas Jefferson Education by Oliver DeMille. And when my little girls were maybe two and three or one and two or something, and I fell in love with the idea of leadership education, of Thomas Jefferson education. And I decided that's what I want to do. And so then I just started reading the books that they were recommending, which was the classics. And I just read them. And I I was so grateful to have a path that I could feel confident that would help me in producing the environment that I wanted for my children. And so I've just been self-educating even before then my whole life, I've just been self-educating. And so. Okay. So a couple of questions. First of all, did you grow up speaking German or English? Yeah. My first language was a dialect of German. Uh, We call it Pennsylvania Dutch. Because I do detect an accent just sounds like someone who did not grow up speaking English and you speak English perfectly, but that's why my question, and I'm in Europe. So my ear is very attuned towards someone who is absolutely native speaker and someone who's learned English. You obviously learned English at a very young age, but when did you use it? I learned English in first grade. So I went, I, we didn't go to preschool. I mean, maybe one day. And then in first grade, that's when you just got immersed and we just learned it. When did you use it though? Because you learned in Pennsylvania Dutch, right? Yes. And so when did you use English? How often? So Basically, we spoke English at our school, even though everybody was primarily Pennsylvania Dutch, used that language at home. We spoke English at school and we could we had to speak English even at recess. And so we used English all the way from, you know, September to Christmas. And then the second semester, we were allowed to speak Pennsylvania Dutch at recess, but, you know, still English in the classroom. And so that was enough to you know, to learn it and to get it in there. And then of course, you know, if you went to town or if you, then there were those interactions too. So do you speak Dutch to your children? I do. Yes. I, my, I married my husband, his family left the Amish when he was 11. And so then he had gone on to high school. And so English, he kind of like was very much, he's more comfortable with that. And so I would say English is the main language that we speak in our home now. And I try to like remind myself and him to speak Dutch as often as, yeah. So they understand, my children understand it, but they don't speak it very much. So my question, I guess, on that is that a lot of the, I work in a bilingual environment, although English is so important in Spain, obviously there's the Spanish. So English is very, very important in Europe and in Spain, but the parents learned French was much more important when they were in school. And so they're not completely comfortable with English. And they know they should push English more, but they're nervous about it because of their own inability to speak it or understand it. So my question for you is, why do you think it's important for your children to understand Dutch and for you to speak it as much as possible with them? I think that there's so much culture that goes with it. And I want them to be able to know it and to speak it. This is in, this conversation is inspiring to me to like double down on my efforts again and um, maybe even just encourage and inspire them what good they'll get out of it. But I mean, they all of their cousins know Dutch. And I just think that when children know two languages, it also helps them out in their intellect and they understood language more. 
And then it, you know, my nine-year-old daughter, she, she would love to learn Latin and Spanish and French. And she just decided that she's going to start learning Latin. And so she's about a week into learning Latin on Duolingo and she's excited about it. And no, it literally opens up more tracks in your mind. So if you grow up speaking a different language without realizing it, you are augmenting so many more of your cognitive possibilities so that you don't only learn other languages more easily, you learn new information more easily. So you probably just know this intuitively. But what I love is that you you also have said that it's not just the language, it's the culture. And we know that you can't just learn a language. You need to learn the culture with the language. Otherwise, they're just words. And so many words have different meanings depending on the context and depending on the country. And so what you're doing for your children is imbibing in them not just the language, but the culture that you grew up in. Is that right? Mm -hmm. So can you tell me a little bit about that? Have you left the Amish world? Mm -hmm. Was that a very conscious decision? Is, is there something you miss about it? Is there something you want your children to know about it? Yes, I. it was a very conscious decision. It looked really huge and daunting to make that decision because there was just a lot of fear that we heard taught around people who leave from our religious leaders. And so to make that choice was definitely a conscious choice. And it took me a while to get the courage and for just life to line up in a way that I could leave. Once I did it, it wasn't that hard at all. So yes, it was a very conscious decision. And I still very much live the way that my mom and dad lived. Like I, you know, I garden, I put out a big garden, I preserve a lot of food, I can it. Yeah, we raise our own chickens, we have eggs, and I don't sew our clothes. That's something different. What was another part of the question? Just about the culture, about what you've left, what if you miss the culture at all, what have you brought with you? Yes, I miss I miss traveling by horse and buggy. It was so peaceful and the fresh air and just the slower pace. I love that and I, I miss that sometimes. And I want our children, like I think, you know, the back to the earth kind of lifestyle that we're doing, that's part of the culture. And then I also want them to feel connected to their ancestors. In, and so I tell them stories about my mom and myself growing up, like how we did birthday parties and just the growing up experiences, because I want them to feel connected to where they come from. So the question I have for you, and this is not about leaving the Amish world, although that's a whole fascinating conversation in itself, and I'd love to know more about it. If you're so conscious about teaching your children about how it was to grow up and you miss certain things about it, what was your motivation to leave? Yeah, the motivation to leave was I wanted to have more freedom in the spiritual arena. We were taught to not read the Bible too much because it, it might lead us to go astray, which is so silly. And there was just a lot of fear taught from the pulpit about if you leave, how much further will your children, you know, stray if you make the step. And that was that was the big thing. I just wanted more religious freedom to pursue to pursue what I wanted in that area. And also just ge in general, when you grow up as an Amish girl, there's there's just kind of one thing expected of you, and that's to 
grow up and to marry someone and to have children and to be a homemaker, which I find so satisfying. I find it so satisfying to do those things. But at the same time, there's something lacking in the intellect when that is the only thing that's really available, because then you just stop thinking, you know, at a certain point in, 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 a, in a way. And what you seem to have done is to recreate a very simple lifestyle, even outside of the community, because it's so comfortable to you. And it doesn't have to be complicated. It doesn't have to be sophisticated to be very fulfilling, right? Right. How did you end up with the homeschooling? Why did you decide to have to dedicate yourself to homeschooling? Well, I love my children. And I'm not saying that if you don't homeschool, you don't love your children. I'm not saying that. But I I was just from my perspective, I thought I would love to be the one that gets to have their best hours of their day because I've seen children go to school, they go early, and then when they come home, they're tuckered out. And they're just not really that available to interact with and to teach them more things, you know, after school. And so I wanted their best hours and I wanted to teach them my values and things that I hold dear, which is the same thing. And so once I read the book to a Thomas Jefferson education, it was like a bomb went off in my brain because it had, he put it into words so beautifully what I intuitively knew, but it was so comforting and delightful to hear it put into words. And he just laid out the three different paths of of an education or of schooling and the three different paths and that we can trust that at the end of each path, there is a certain result of a student or of a, of a human being. And, you know, one path is the result is a dependable employee and which there's nothing the matter with. Like we, uh, every successful society or prosperous society needs dependable employees. But then the second path is at the end of that, there are the professions like the lawyers and the judges and doctors and the nurses and all of those wonderful people that we also need. And then on the other path, the third path are where the leaders come from, and that those are the people that know how to think in any situation. Those are the people who are equipped for their life mission, whatever it might be, but it's their individual gift to the world of how they contribute to and serve their fellow man. And so I knew that I wanted that third path. And the the truth of it is that if you go on the third path first, then you can totally be a doctor also. But it's a different thing completely to just go for the doctor and not have all the experiences of the classics than it is to have the experiences of the great classics and then to become a doctor. This is really fascinating, Esther. This is fascinating because I really do need to read the book. What he's saying, what was it, 200 years ago is what's being said now. There's a difference between the traditional type of teaching where it's all teacher directed and it was formed, you might know this, It was formed by a Prussian king who wanted to create perfect soldiers. And what the Industrial Revolution did was adopted the same method and they had perfect factory workers. And I say the same as you. If you want to be a factory worker, more power to you. But what I'd like to do as an educator is give you options so that if you want to be a factory worker, wonderful. And if you want to be a doctor, you have that intellect as well. And as you're saying, if you want to be a leader, that's what's going on now in the educational world. In Europe especially, and it's beginning in the States, is that we're working on competences. And that means social skills and critical thinking and developing all the skills that technology can't do. 
So in other words, if you want to be a leader today, you need to have skills that the computer and other types of technology still can't do. And that's the path you've chosen to use in your homeschool. Is that right? Mm -hmm. How many children do you have and how many children do you have in your homeschool? I have five children. They're from the ages two to nine. And then I have two other girls who also join us Tuesday through Fridays, and they are nine and six. And these are from neighbors? Yes. From our area, they're daughters of a good friend of mine. Okay. Now in Spain, there's virtually no homeschooling. So it would be really interesting to know if you had to become certified to become a homeschool teacher. I didn't. In Michigan, our laws are, we've been very blessed to still have a lot of freedom in this area. And not that I would be opposed to, I I feel like, you know, reading the books that I read and I love that. I love becoming, you know, certified and, you know, in my own way. And so, yeah, I didn't need to have to to do any of that. And how do you evaluate your children and the other two? What kind of structure do you need to give to the state government to validate the education that you're working on? Yeah. So in Michigan, actually, there is, I don't need to turn in any, like, I don't think that I would get in trouble if I don't turn in anything. There's the option that I can be plugged in. And, you know, every year, once a year, take my children to the local school and have them evaluated with the rest of them. And I haven't chosen to do that at this point. I I might at some point just for the fun of it and just to see, just to give them that experience too. The structure that I have for them is based on the A. Thomas Jefferson education. They lay out like these different phases in a human's development. And the first eight years of a child's life, they call it core phase. And those are the years where they their job is to learn good and bad, right and wrong, true and false, and to to learn the differences and to choose the the higher one. And the way that they do that is through working together with the adult, with the parents and to play together and to sing together and to pray together and to laugh together and to read together. So that's how they experience those things and how they learn because it's so much so experiential. It's not the words that you say necessarily to them. It's how they experience you and their environment. And so then the second phase is called love of learning. And that's from like nine to 12, somewhere around there. These ages are fluid because different kids are different. And in that phase, it's all about, it's more about the love for learning than it is about learning specifically as in that they have to learn something from start to finish or that there has to be some product that comes from it or a result. It's, it's a kind of like if they would be a butterfly in a field of flowers and they would just be, they would, they would just love all the different flowers and they would go from one to the other to the other and they would stay on some maybe a little bit shorter and on some a little bit longer but they would get this this wide variety of delicious nectars that they get to choose how long they want to stay or which one they want to go to next and so that's about love of learning and there they learn these other lessons of how to real like it's more where they interact with grandparents also and aunts and uncles in a way that's intellectual and they're learning things from them and they're they learn about more about their place in the world and why mom and dad are the way they are and why they are the way they are and why the world is the way it is and just like it's important for me as a parent to 
you know, to welcome and to facilitate these conversations, to be available for them when they ask. Because um, what's the next stage? You have one to eight and then nine to 12. And then what is the next? And then it's scholar phase from about 13 to 18. And in scholar phase, it's all about love of study. And that's where they dig into the great classics, hopefully with an in, with a mentor that can inspire them to sometimes do the harder the harder ones. And they put in like five to eight thousand hours of intense study and discussion of the great classics. And they can be books or they can be classic as any work that is worth studying over and over. And you learn more each time. And so they put in those five to eight thousand hours to get that under their belt. And then the next phase is depth phase. And that's like the college level where they go even deeper and broader and for sure, like deeper into their passions where they they're more interested in. And then after depth phase is impact phase. And that's where you build two pillars. One pillar is your family and another pillar is your career or your contribution to society. And then the last phase, there's six phases. The last one is impact. And that's where you're, you know, an elder or a grandparent and you're just impacting in in a bigger way because your children are grown and they're out of the home. And okay, so this is very this is fascinating because we were talking a little bit before we officially started on, on Waldorf and in Waldorf philosophy, there are seven there are the stages are in seven. So it's one through seven and then eight through 14, et cetera. And it's based on the biology. They think in the spiritual world also, there are many spiritual practices where there are seven years and every seven years we're ready for a different spiritual depth, that sort of thing. And what you're saying is the one to eight, they're learning the values and they're learning social skills and through play and through organic means. In this is pretty much where you are now because the ages of your children are two until what did you say? Nine. Two to nine. So how are you navigating the difference of ages with regards to the activities that you plan every day? Yeah. So in the mornings, that's when we do our structured time. And we'll I'll start out with a story and maybe. It's normally been a Bible story, but recently or just this week, I've switched to an Uncle Arthur's bedtime story because those are such good character building stories. And then this morning, I so we read a story from that. One of the kids picked it and then we prayed and everybody gets a chance to pray or they all they all do. It's just kind of part of the routine. And I it, that is such a special thing because they get to interact and ex- with God and express themselves in their sweet little hearts. And they pray for each other. They pray for their parents and they ask for what they want. And it's just, it's just such a special thing. And so then after the prayer, then like this morning, I read a chapter from scripture and we sometimes we memorize something like memorize poems and we've memorized, you know, the books of the Bible and we've memorized some passages from scripture. And then after that, sometimes this morning I had some art ready and they chose not to do that then. And they chose to play a game that's more math. And so they, I was, I was fine with that. We'll do the art tomorrow. The art had to do with, I had written down our family rules. We just have like five different things. And I thought if I would make them in pretty letters on one on each paper, then each child could have one paper to decorate and make it theirs, however pretty they want it to make it. And then we'll hang it up on our wall and it'll be a reminder of what, you know, our family rules are. Um, And so 
then after that, it was time to get lunch. And and we also have a school cabinet where there are building blocks and all kinds of different building things that they can, this is a time when they can go in there and play, get something out that they are drawn to and play with it, build things. And they'll, they have magnetiles and they have been building just these amazing things for the last two years. And just recently, I was reading a book that is called The Beginner's Guide to Constructing a Universe by Michael Schneider. Oh, I love that book. I love it. And I learned about a tetrahedron and I was explaining it at the dinner table to my family and Adele, she's a nine-year-old. And she said, oh, I was just explaining it with my hands and, you know, like how it is. And she said, oh, I know how to make that. And she went and got the magnetiles and she made one. And then we experienced, experimented with, you know, making different styles of tetrahedrons. And it was just so cool to have another word. And I've noticed that about you. You use like these neat words. You have this big vocabulary and I love it. You said pedantic when you, in your email. And I was like, oh, I love it. I love words. And it's so exciting when you find another word to add to your vocabulary. And so... And the more you use it with your, even the youngest learners, the more they learn it. If you don't use it, they don't learn it. If you use it, they learn it really organically. Yes. And if you let me comment on a few things, because I'd like just to backtrack, because you've given me so many things to think about. What you're doing, obviously, is faith-based learning, which is really powerful. And what I could say to a, a teacher in public school, for instance, who, who might be listening to you talking in this podcast, and who isn't going to teach through faith-based learning, what you're doing, actually is giving your children uh, in your homeschool the time to voice their opinions. It's sort of like a class meeting. They're learning that they have a voice and their voice matters. And they're learning respect for each other through their prayers, through expressing their prayers. It sounds like you're encouraging them to recognize the values in each of them and in themselves. So they're respecting themselves. They're respecting the others. They're respecting you. You're creating a respectful environment. But what you're also doing is creating an, a dynamic where they feel they have a voice and it's an important voice, even at the youngest age. The other thing that I'm fascinated by, you really consciously choose the content. You really consciously think about the stories that you're going to use. And if you want stories with more sophisticated vocabulary, ask me and I'll send you some things. But it sounds like you're really good at finding these yeah, I, those are such kind words. And it's so fun to me to hear you like elucidate all of the things that you see, because I've just been doing what I do. And, you know, and then in the afternoons, sometimes they work on something, but very rarely yet, I think that'll come more, you know, as they get 10 and 11, and then they'll have more projects that they'll do. But a lot of the times in the afternoon, they'll just have time to play and to I often am not even playing. I'm normally not even playing with them, but they're getting to practice leadership outside playing together. And so that's more, it's doable for me to homeschool, you know, this many children, if I don't have to make them sit down and do worksheets and that we have that available and sometimes they do it on their own. But I feel like the lessons that they are learning right now are so much deeper than what that would give them. Like they're learning to be their own people. They're learning to be, to know themselves, even if it's subconsciously or unconsciously, like, but they're learning. And my Adele, like she plays for hours 
and can make stories with her Legos or with her, you know, for hours. And she'll just, she'll just focus for that. And she loves doing it. And so I just think it's really fun to do it this way. And I'm sure that there are other, lots of other ways that also work. It sounds like what you've also done is create learning centers, what we would call in a public school classroom or in any other type of school, learning centers where they have things that whatever time you want to give them in each center. And there's a specific type of game here. This is more three-dimensional. This is more two-dimensional. This is more for technology, if you use technology in, in your homeschooling. But what you're doing is giving them the opportunity to really delve in and to really use all of their skills, not just linguistic and not just logic. You're, you're letting them be creative. So the learning centers, from what I hear, is phenomenal. I was telling you, again, we were talking about Waldorf and this Sunday with Sarah, the one, the teacher that I was telling you about, where both of her sons grew up in a Waldorf schooling. And they said their favorite, their favorite part of the day was playing with a piece of wood, a piece of wood. It was a plank of wood. And they said all everyone would fight over this plank of wood. Why? Because they could just do whatever they, they, they were incredibly creative with this plank of wood and they built things with it and they used it for bridges or they used it to make a seesaw, whatever. It just became a fascinating project for an entire school year. And it sounds like that's what you've given your, your children and your students as well. You've also, I don't know if you realize that you show them every day that you are a lifelong learner and that you love learning and that you can learn, you're learning through books, but you're also letting them learn through play. So where do you think you're going next? You have a nine-year-old, you have a two-year-old and you have a nine-year-old. That's the, that's the extreme at this point, right? As your eldest goes into her teenage years, how do you think the dynamic is going to change? I think that naturally as she hits puberty, she's going to her and then her brain gets to be an adult brain because of that chemical that is released when we hit puberty. And so then she'll naturally transition more into into scholar phase. Like it's not something that I have to push or or make it happen. I am there as a facilitator and to inspire. And that's as she she'll practice with it in the beginning. Like maybe one day she'll be in, in scholar phase and we'll have a contract between us, like how that looks. And the days that she chooses to be a scholar phase, she'll be released from doing errands for me or just doing this and that for me. But then she'll be more in charge of maybe one bigger or one area of our home, of our family work. Maybe she'll be in charge of, of keeping the upstairs picked up or, you know, or something. Then the days that she, in the beginning, she'll go back and forth, you know, go back to love of learning for a day. And then she'll be available to do errands for me. But it's kind of a right now is the time when she's when they're learning to do the different skills of the household work. And by the time she's 13 or 12, like she'll she'll be a mini me as far as in her skills, like she'll be able to do all the things or that's, that's the plan. That's the hope. And I, I, I believe it is, she's well on track to do that. And so I'll need to let her have her time because in the beginning, she'll just do a couple hours, but then as the year progresses and as another year comes, she'll be, eventually she'll be eight to 10 hours in a day is when she'll be studying. And then the beauty of that is that the next daughter and then the next son, they get to be the oldest you know, that are available to do the work and the errands. And 
And then there isn't a middle child syndrome or a youngest child syndrome where they never really learn the skills. I think you know what I what I'm talking about. And so then also as they get older, there's this natural organic interaction with them and their younger siblings. And they teach them because our oldest daughter is so good at playing by herself and using her imagination while the second daughter picked it up just from watching her. And then the son, he's good at it too already. And he's six. And then the younger two, like I saw my two-year-old, like he'll be playing and making noises and I can just, and he'll be talking to himself and it's, you know, it's not very plain, but I can tell he's telling a story. And so the dynamics will change in that the older will just continue to, to break down their level of what they're learning for the younger ones. So what you're describing, and I don't think you even realize it. And again, this is so intuitive. You might never have studied this. The, in the Montessori philosophy, they have the they have groups of three ages. So it's three to six and et cetera. And what they do, they do it very deliberately so that, as you said, they become a leader at some point. They can teach the younger ones, but then the younger ones will rise to also becoming the leader. And that's exactly what you're doing in your homeschool environment. So let me ask you, let's go, let's go outside your house. Let's extend out to other homeschools because you have a podcast on homeschooling. What is your goal in your podcast? What is your relationship and connection to other homeschool parents? And what would you like to say about homeschooling? Yeah. So in my, in my area, there's not very many people who are moms and dads who are willing to quite be as to give their children as much space. So I would love, the reason that I have my podcast is to help other moms see the value of giving their children space and to just talk about the ideas and help to bring, just to bring awareness to, oh, like that would be an option maybe. And in my circles, I don't know any, personally in in my circle, in my area, I don't know any 14 to 18 year olds who are studying eight to 10 hours a day on their own because they love it. And, you know, with a mentor and begging for more. I don't know anybody. I know people, the DeMille's, TJ, they know a lot of people like that. And so I know it's possible. And their example of their family has been so inspiring for me. And so I know it's possible, but that's why I'm doing my podcast is just to see if there's more families who would like to actually have youth who are studying that much and really preparing to launch into their adult life. But if I may, and tell me if this is correct or not, it's not that you want to, your children to study, is that you want them to have the freedom to love to learn. Is that right? Yes. When they are in love of learning, that's what that is all about. And then when they move into scholar phase, they don't leave the love of learning behind. So yes, you're right. Like love of learning should go with us our whole life, as well as core phase, like loving and, you know, doing all of those, like working and playing and loving and praying and singing and all of those things should go with us. And so what I'm aspiring to is that my children would at some point between the ages of 14 and 18, when they're ready, and it's they they become ready at different, different ages. But I that's what I'm pulling for is I'm setting that environment that they can do that, that they have the space to study for eight to 10 hours, you know, once they're worked up to that amount of hours to really read the classics and really get into them. And that is such a, I didn't know that existed when I was that age. And it was a surprise to me to learn that it existed. What are your thoughts on that? 
On which part? Just on the possibilities. Like, do you know kids, you know, youth, teenagers who are in the ages of 14 to 18 that are just loving to read books like, you know, even like The Beginner's Guide to Constructing the Universe and Newton even and Euclid. And I mean, those are some hard ones. And those wouldn't come until, you know, maybe 17 and 18 year old that age. I think it's a fast, it's a fantastic question. When I was growing up, I read, I mean, I'm a literature major. I lived in books. I loved reading. But also I grew up, my mother did not permit us to watch television. We were allowed to watch television, I think, two nights a week. I always hid and watched some. But for the most part, books were my entertainment. And I loved it. But I love to read. And my whole family, it's, it's a, maybe it's because of the times that because technology wasn't so big, books really were the center of our lives. And I'm talking about the extended family also. And now I watch my sister's children, for instance, one of my nieces, she loved to read. She loved it growing up. And then all of a sudden she got an iPhone and she admits herself. She said, I I don't read anymore because I have so many things, so many messages on my iPhone. And I think it's tragic. So your question is fascinating. I think the answer is Clearly, I don't know many teenagers. I don't know any teenagers who love to read, who don't who have the time to read because they're just their phone is in front of their faces most of the day. And it's really too bad. And the other part is you well know in homeschooling, you're giving them the choice of what to learn. In public schools and private schools, they have a list of things they have to learn. And that's the end of it. And when someone says, it happened to me in university. I was a literature major, but when I went to the university, I had a list of books I had to read. And boy, did I hate that list. And boy, did I hate those books. And all of a sudden, I stopped reading because it was someone telling me I had to read those books. And I had to come up with an opinion on this author and this philosophy, et cetera, et cetera. And what it sounds like you're doing in your homeschooling is you're giving your children the option of what, they, what they're interested in. And I think that's invaluable. I do have a question for you that's it's a little bit of a twist because it's a faith-based education, what you're giving your children, and there's a lot of prayer in there. And I think it's fundamental having been brought up in a home where I'm Jewish, so we prayed in synagogue, but that doesn't necessarily mean we were spiritual. And I didn't really understand what prayer was for in a spiritual sense, just um, the rhythm of it I love, the language, he, saying it in Hebrew, I absolutely love. But it wasn't something where I felt more connected to anyone else because of it. What I'm wondering is, it sounds like you have a deep faith. Are you open to, do your children know about other religions? And are they open to exploring other religions? That is an interesting and a good question. And when I was growing up, that was not available or really, that was just not a thing. And so this, even the the course that we just took, the Abundant Never After course, that was a quite, it was an experience for me. It, it is kind of a different religion than what I grew up in. And I, I had to ask questions and I had to, I came up against that as a kid, I was not, we were taught to fear other religions. That's what it was. That's what it was. And so I learned just, this is like a new lesson for me, that it's actually good to study different religions because you can find truth in all different places. And if we embrace truth and beauty, wherever we find it, that's a form of us trusting God. Even if we don't agree with 
you know, exactly everything that that person might do or, or that culture might do or not do. And then if we also, you know, whatever we find falsehood or hypocrisy in ourselves or in, in our faith circle or whatever, and we don't, then we also need to reject it no matter how dearly it came to us, because that's also trusting God when we can reject the falsehoods that might have come to us very dearly. Well, I think also, and and again, it's not a conversation on faith, but since you're doing faith-based learning, I think it, it behooves us to talk about it just a little bit. And I grew up Jewish, but I feel like I am a citizen of the universe. And I believe that there's truth in if if you believe something and it helps you connect to other people and respect them and honor them, and you don't feel the need to convince them to believe the same thing you do, then whatever religion you're following is perfect. But I also had the freedom to explore other religions. So at some point, you may also feel free enough to do that. Again, if you're living in a fear-based environment that you did growing up, I, I'm not saying that's what your children are growing up, and it sounds like the opposite, then there's nothing to fear because what you're just doing is exploring other perspectives. Yes. I mean, my faith teaches me that, you know, to not fear like that the Bible, you know, teaches us, it says it 365 times, which is one day per year or each day of the year to not fear, don't fear. And so, yeah, so this has just been such a gift to me to come up against this and to think about it and to process and to really choose more to not fear, but to love and to trust. So. What is your hope for homeschooling for you and for other people? That is such a fun question and such a good question. My hope for homeschooling is that families would be stronger because of it, because they're not splintered off into all their different worlds. And but they're they're doing a lot, a lot of life together. And so stronger families and that the students, that the children would be equipped with what they need with with all the riches and the abundance that they need as far as wisdom and knowledge to and just to be that they would be a whole person because of their growing up years and their their interaction with the classics and with their family and that they would be equipped to and empowered to launch into their adulthood in their 20s already to be effective and to be to not have to unlearn a bunch of lessons that were not helpful but that they would just be able to have this store of, of treasures within to operate from and to serve the people that they're meant to serve. Esther, this has been such an incredible conversation. It's so unexpected. I did not have any idea what we were going to talk about. Your kids are only in front of a movie once a week. We're going to state that, that they don't see the screen very often, but you've creed yourself up to be able to join me in this talk. And I thank you so much. You've just shown so much intuition. And, and I'd love to explore this again when your children are further into their education. So let's talk again. I'm going to make sure that we know where to find you on your homeschool podcast. All right. Because I would love to make your dream come true as well. More homeschooling probably is a good thing. I think for the time being, let's end it here and we'll continue in the future. Does that sound good? That sounds so good. Thank you so much, Donna, for just this time. And I can tell that your, your intellect has been, you've very much invested in it. And it's been such a pleasure to just have this conversation. And so thank you very much. And yes, I would love to reconnect. 
I'm already looking forward to catching up with Esther in the near future to hear how her children are progressing and how the next phases in the leadership education program are going, how that structure is giving them support inside and outside the classroom. Also, all the discoveries that Esther will have learned by then. I hope you've learned something new and exciting in this chat. And you can find more about Esther and her philosophy about homeschooling in her own podcast, Homeschool with Excellence. You can find more conversations with me about different aspects of education at Doodles with Donna. And please write to me with any questions you may have at Donna at scaffoldingmagic.com. In the meantime, please have so much fun in your classes, and I'll see you soon. Thank you.